Let us now give our attention to the reading of Holy Scripture, and we'll turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, where we will read the first 23 verses. This time I'd like to give credit to Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, minister of the Mount Nasura Church in Western Australia, who has prepared and published the sermon that we might use it this morning, and we pray that it may serve for our edification and our encouragement. So we turn in our Bibles to the narrative of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha has now taken over the prophetic reins from Elijah. He has been active in many different miracles. In the previous chapter, we could see Naaman's leprosy being healed, but even more importantly, we could see that his heart was changed, that he could, conf- he could confess that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. At the same time, we've also seen Gehazi's greed exposed, and he received the leprosy that Naaman had. So we'll turn our attention to chapter 6. Our text is the first seven verses, but we'll read to the end of verse 23. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let, and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel with the words that, that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went there, Allah, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. 
So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the band of, bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So our text is the first seven verses of chapter six. And the second part of that chapter is a foretaste for this afternoon's sermon, which Alex Sikama will present. Beloved in Christ, what is a miracle? Sometimes we say that the birth of a baby is a miracle. Or when a sports team comes from behind to win the championship with a last-second basket or with a double overtime win, people might call that a miracle. It's a word that we use loosely, but what is a miracle? As believers in the living God, we'd say that a miracle is when the Lord intervenes in the regular course of nature. He sets aside what is normally expected to bring about some extraordinary result. If you read the stories of the ministry of Elisha here in 2 Kings, you'll see the prophet to be a man of miracles. He says little, but he does much healing Jericho's polluted waters, multiplying the widow's oil, raising her son, salvaging some bad stew, healing leprosy, and more. Each of these miraculous events define natural explanation, acts of power that cannot be controlled or predicted. Elisha has said little, yet each of his miracles carries a message. He is a prophet, after all, a spokesman for God. So every miracle is saying something about the Lord he represents, that God is merciful to sinners, for instance, that God cares for the lowly, consider how he cared for the widow with her jars of oil, that he holds power over death, consider the raising of the Shunammite son, that he has power over disease, consider the healing of Naaman the leper, and that Gentiles matter to him, consider the conversion of Naaman the Syrian God intervenes to show something about himself. So what about the story of the floating axe head? Here God intervenes yet again. He sets aside the laws of nature so that Elisha can recover someone's hand tool from the river. But what's the point? It certainly demonstrates God's power again, yet the whole story seems trivial. Does an axe head really matter? When people aren't sure what to do with Bible stories like this, they sometimes turn to allegory. They try to find a hidden meaning in each of the various details of the text. So the axe head might stand for a man's soul, and the Jordan River might stand for judgment. Because of sin, a man's soul is lost beneath the waters of judgment. And Elisha's stick stands for the cross of Jesus because it's through the wooden cross that sinners are saved, pulled from judgment, and given new life. It's a good effort but I don't think we have permission to find allegory in Scripture wherever we please. For then you can make any text say almost anything you like. Far better is to just take a text at face value. It means what it says and says what it means. 
Let's then listen carefully to the word of God from 2 Kings 6, the first seven verses. Under this theme, God shows mercy in the miracle of the floating axe head. The first place, what was lost, and secondly, is found. So first of all, God shows mercy in the miracle of the floating axe head, what was lost. Over the last several chapters, Elisha has been the main character in most of these stories. Now and again, Gehazi has been mentioned in a supporting role until he was removed for his coveting spirit. Besides Gehazi, the sons of the prophets have also made an appearance here and there. The sons of the prophets were groups of faithful believers in Israel, men who were devoted to learning from the true messengers of the Lord. In an age of widespread idolatry, these small bands of men were were determined to hold on to the ways of the Lord. They gathered around Elijah when he ministered in places like Jericho and Bethel. And then after he was taken up to heaven, the sons of the prophets had flocked to Elisha. It sounds as if they looked to him not only for good teaching, but also for some of the daily necessities of life. Remember how they pleaded with him to do something about the bad stew. Now again in our text, we hear the sons of the prophets ask their headmaster for some practical help. We read in verse 1, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. From the sounds of it, Elisha and his students were living together in a kind of community. Maybe you could picture a collection of modest buildings with a central meeting room and some, some dorms around it. At any rate, the sons of the prophets were, were facing something that the school society has to deal with from, from time to time, overcrowded facilities. Their meeting place is becoming cramped, and it's time for an expansion project. We could actually take this as a positive sign for God's faithful ones in Israel. If their dwelling place is getting too small, then it must mean that the community is growing. Through the ongoing ministry of Elisha, the sons of the prophets are increasing in number, and so they need a bigger and improved place to meet. It's also a small but hopeful sign for Israel's future. And it's a reminder that Christ is always busy with his church. There will certainly be times when the numbers of his people seem to be dwindling, but we shouldn't despair when numbers decline. And we should also give thanks to the Lord when numbers grow, for Christ will always have a people for himself. So in Israel and in this this text, the faithful need more space. So they make a proposal to Elisha. We read verse 2. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. At that time, the area around the Jordan must have been a good place for finding timbers to work on their project. Elisha agrees that they should do this work, but one of the men has a request in verse 3. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. Every work crew needs supervision. And Elisha is willing, so he accompanies them down to the Jordan. So far, it all seems pretty mundane. But as we'll see a bit later, this invitation is an important detail. For it means that Elisha will be present when the axe head is lost. You see that God is already making preparations for the miracle that is about to unfold. From a human point of view, the Lord is always several steps ahead of us. He's thinking of things in our life long before they're even close to happening. And from a divine point of view, the Lord is more than several steps ahead of us. 
God is already there in the future, for he's not limited by time and space. But first, back to the story and to a sudden alarming emergency. We read in verses 4 and 5, So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now to us, a lost hand to us hardly a crisis. For example, many years ago, when I was a landscaper, we would break our shovels on a regular basis. Handles would snap when prying rocks out of the ground or chopping through the roots of trees. A broken shovel was inconvenient, but it was easily replaced. Today, we just head to the hardware store and buy a new one. But try to relate to an Israelite in the 8th century before Christ. An iron implement like an axe was most valuable. Just to make an axe like this would require many hours of intense labor. Gathering wood for a blazing hot fire, then refining and melting the iron ore, then shaping and sharpening the axe head. And so a tool like this would have been quite expensive, and to lose it in the river was awful. One commentator suggests that losing a borrowed axe head was like, was like someone smashing the car, was, like, was something like smashing the car that someone let you drive for the weekend. Verse 5 is another reminder of the challenging times in which these people lived. The sons of the prophets didn't have much, for this axe was borrowed. And now to replace it will take some doing. To earn enough to buy another one, this man and maybe the rest of the community with him is going to have to work long and hard, months of labor, just to replace something lost in in an instant. So maybe you can understand why the man cries out as the axe flies from his hands and into the river with a loud splash. Gone. The laws of nature mean that this axe head is now at the bottom of the Jordan probably buried deep in the mud and past all recovery. You can understand the man's dismay, but is this really a problem for the prophet to handle? It's a simple need of one man. God's truth is not at stake here. No one's going to die. There's not even any immediate danger of anyone going hungry. Is this really worth the Lord's time? Compare it for a moment to the two miracles that surround this one. In the last chapter was Elisha's healing of Naaman, the Syrian army commander. This was clearly a miracle with a headline message, God cares for the nations. Enemies and outsiders can receive his mercy. And then later in chapter 6, there's the amazing story of God's heavenly army being revealed to Elisha and his servant when they're stuck in city under siege. And they get a startling glimpse of the Lord's true power. Right in the middle of these headline stories, there's the tiny incident of an axe head lost in the Jordan. Sure, it was a big deal for this one man, but next to the dramatic stories of ministry to the Gentiles and a Syrian invasion, you'd think that the Lord has far bigger things to be concerned with and to respond to. Maybe you've thought something similar about your own life. Next to all the problems that are afflicting the world right now, Is God really concerned with your little troubles? The Lord has a COVID pandemic to manage, missionaries to bless, forest fires to control, and the hearts of presidents to direct. Does he really want to hear about our small lives? 
Does he want to hear about the worries about your falling business income or about the hopes we cherish for the school year? Is the living God who is enthroned in heaven above actually concerned about you getting your driver's license or your doctor's appointment next week? Are we just flattering ourselves to think that Almighty God cares about people's sunken axe heads and broken arms and broken hearts? But our God is faithful in little things and in great things. It's a wondrous truth that your father is not so occupied with the government of the world that he can't be bothered with our small lives and their many needs. Remember the encouraging words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. There we read, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very heads of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of much more value than many sparrows. One aspect of our Father's greatness is his deep concern for the small and ordinary affairs of the lives of his children. It's God's promise to always care for us because we are precious to him in Christ Jesus. And of course, we all know that's true. We can all recite Lord's Day 10 about the providence of God. There we confess that God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He upholds and governs all things, but so often we act as if it's not true because we let the little problems, the small details, the insignificant matters pile up in our hearts and our minds and we do not cast them onto the Lord in prayer. Maybe at some level we figure that he's really not interested or maybe we reckon that we should just solve it ourselves. At any rate, we hold on to our fears and our worries. We brood over them, getting more anxious by the moment because we do not bring them to God because we do not really grapple with the truth that God cares for us. But God does care about our lives, even in all their little details and insignificant moments. He's a loving Father who has engraved the names of his children onto the palms of his hands, so he takes a close interest in what troubles us. He already knows, but he wants to hear it from us. He already knows, but God is pleased to answer our prayers in his kindness. It's true that we don't always know what our true needs actually are. For the son of the prophet in 2 Kings 6, a sunken axe head was a genuine need. For you working in your garden tomorrow, a broken shovel may not be something you feel that you need to pray about, and that's fine. But there are many other things that you do need to pray about, that you should pray about. And thankfully, God our Father understands our genuine needs so that we can lay our lives before him in humble expectation he promises to provide for us in the most faithful way. This brings us to our second point. What was lost is now found. The man in our text facing his own little crisis has called on Elisha for help, telling him about the axe head buried deep in the river. And at once, Elisha gets involved. We continue our reading at verse 6. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. 
So he reached out his hand and took it. Just like Elisha has done before, here he acts decisively, but simply in order to show God's power. Before it was a dash of salt thrown into a polluted spring, a handful of flour into a spoiled stew. Now it's a stick tossed into the river, right on the spot where the axe head had dropped. And the miracle is described in the plainest way. He made the iron float. It's a miracle, another intervention by God in the normal order of things, because iron doesn't float. Unless it's made of styrofoam, an axe head has a higher density than water, and it will immediately sink. But this is my father's world, and he's free to rewrite any so-called laws of nature. And so he does, and the axe head pops to the surface of the river. Now there's always doubters among those who read the Bible, and so some will dismiss the event in our text as something less than a miracle. They say that Elisha, Elisha actually, that what Elisha actually did was take a stick, poke around in the water until he felt something hard on the riverbed. Then with a bit of coaxing from his stick, he was able to get the axe head out of the water and into the hands of his grateful student. So it's not a miracle as such, but just a good lesson in taking the time and effort to look to the interests of others. But the text is straightforward, isn't it? Through God's power, Elisha made the iron float. And let's think again about how God set all of this up. For the rescue of the axe head to take place that day, the presence of Elisha was essential. So now we understand the detail of why the one man invited him along to the Jordan. He didn't know, of course, what was about to happen, but God did. So God made sure that Elisha came along on this errand. That gives us a glimpse into the amazing workings of God's government overall. His mighty providence is constantly at work, even when we don't think of it or notice it, even when it's not till much later that we do. There are circumstances that God is arranging long before we know that we'll ever need them. Isn't that incredible to think about? Even the trivial events of today or tomorrow, the missed appointment, the passing conversation, a good book that we read over the holidays, a new relationship with our neighbor. God might be using these small things to become part of something that is far greater, like our own spiritual growth or a new opportunity for service or the conversion of someone who is lost. Maybe you can think of stories from your own life when you've noticed this. Perhaps there have been small and ordinary occurrences that led to moments to momentous events in your life, or events which helped to prepare you for some trial or for some blessing. We have no idea where a random incident might lead, how even something like an invitation to come along on an errand can become an occasion for God to show his goodness and his care. We can't predict these things, of course, but what we do know is that God is working out his good plan in our lives each and every day. God our Father is bringing us somewhere and we can rest in his leading. Beloved, may this move us to adore him and may this move us to trust him evermore. So let's return again to the question we asked near the beginning of the sermon. What's the point? Why was God pleased to perform a miracle by recovering a lost tool from the river? At one level, it's simply an act of mercy. There's no prophetic word fulfilled, no judgment stated, no promise given. 
Yet we know that God never does miracles for their own sake, but always for a purpose. Just like in Jesus' ministry, each miracle carries a message. Each miracle is another revelation of God's glory. That is what we're meant to ask. After all, every time we read a passage of scripture, what does this text reveal to us about the Lord? The miracle of the floating axe head shows that God is indeed concerned for the small things of our life. Because for us, the small things can often become big things. For this one man, a lost axe head was a big deal. For you and me, a car repair bill can be a big thing. So can a headache, or a bad report card, or a tough meeting at work. These things matter to us, and because they matter to us, they matter to God. He cares. It doesn't mean that God will suddenly erase the money we owe or make the headache disappear or give us a better report card or a more pleasant work meeting. But it does mean that God is with us in our struggle and he'll supply what we truly need. In power and goodness, he'll come near to us. Romans 8 verse 32 reads, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Yes, he'll give all things that we need. Sometimes there are times when God supplies our needs in extraordinary ways. Think of when Jesus needs money to pay the temple tax. It sounds like he didn't have any money to do so. Not surprising, since he was homeless and unemployed. But he tells Peter to go to the sea with his fishing rod, open the mouth of the first fish that he catches, and there he'll find enough money to pay the temple tax for both of them. A small need met in remarkable fashion. Again, maybe you have a memory of God doing something similar for you, an unexpected pay raise, a sudden gift, finding a $20 bill on the ground, God providing in surprising ways. And surely you also have a memory of God providing in ordinary ways, because that's from his hand too. A regular income, sufficient strength for another day, the support given by fellow saints. The point is, God supplies our needs. The event in our text would have been a great encouragement for Elisha and the sons of the prophets. God saw their trouble and helped them. But consider how this story would also have been a testimony to the rest of the people of Israel. So many at this time were straying away from him, relying on false gods and turning to other nations for help. But the aid of man is worthless. When unfaithful Israel heard this story, they would also be hearing God's gracious appeal to them, an appeal once more to turn to him, to repent from their sin, and be willing to trust him completely. And that's the unchanging gospel in our text. God's grace and help are freely available for all who fear him. For Jesus' sake, God withholds no good thing from those who seek him. So bring your cares to him and learn to rest in our Father's faithfulness and love. Amen.